Well, this week, we're going to be talking about allyship and specifically when it comes to the fight against anti-black racism. If you are a white person, what does that mean for how you relate to black people? But specifically, what does allyship mean in the work that you must do, assuming that you're on board with the end, which is to get to an end where we live in a country where hopefully our racialized identities are ultimately eliminated, but at the very least are not really looming as large as they do currently as a result of our past history. And there's this perennial question the world over, particularly if you self-identify as a liberal white person or progressive or any such terminology, whichever one is most comfortable, what does that mean for what kind of work you can or can't do? What does it mean to do battle with those who are oppressed if you are a beneficiary of their oppression through no choice of your own? And those are questions that many a scholar, a thinker, a journalist, and ordinary people across the world have grappled with for a very long time. Now, why now this conversation? Well, firstly, racism doesn't go out of fashion. There's never a good time to talk about what more we can do. But the more immediate news cycle impetus, if you will, is that two weeks ago, there was a really interesting article written by a Harvard doctoral student Panache Chigumatsi that was published in The Guardian and an extended version in The Sunday Times. And at its heart, she argued or framed a question more than argued, really, whether or not Ubuntu is fully understood and lived out by white people. And the underlying premise was that Ubuntu is not as easy as it seems. It actually is radical. The demands are quite tough because you have to recognize other people. And there's a deep, deep, deep idea of recognition based on some analytical work that one can do in political theory or in moral philosophy. To see someone is not just to physically register their presence. It is to do much more than that. And very often we talk about Ubuntu in these rainbow nation terms or Gumbaya terms. And the argument she was making is that Ubuntu is actually quite radical. When you understand its radicalism, you probably need to do quite a bit of soul searching before you can say, I live Ubuntu. And it caused a stir on our pages. It caused a stir from many of our readers. Uh, you will know that I'm part of the arena holding stable. That's why I'm using the, <laughs> the language of ours. Um, and our readers were up in arms. Well, the deputy editor in charge of features is Sue de Groot, who wrote a really fantastic summation and an engagement with more than a summation of the responses that we received to that question, whether or not white people are really on board with Ubuntu. And I asked Sue to come onto this platform in the ring with Eusebius MacKaiser, just to shoot the breeze with me, A, around your responses as the public, and then B, her and I as fellow South Africans just engaging on the issues. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. Hi, 
Beja. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. So good morning to you. Good morning, Eusebius. Thanks so much for being part of this conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Let's start journalistically. What were the kinds of responses that Panache got from our readers at the Sunday Times? So the, the responses to Panache and then to my response to the responses were quite similar. I have to say, yeah, it's all a bit meta, but I, I have to say I was quite surprised. And I, I'm not sure if Panache was too about the kind of ruffled feathers and antagonism that was evident, not not all of them, but in a lot of the letters. And, you know, to be fair, we must realize that most people who take the trouble to write to papers generally are people with a, I mean, I'm not, I'm not damning letter writers, but it's very often people who have an axe to grind to start with. And uh, that's not to say everyone. We get some really thoughtful, engaging letters from, from really interesting people of all spectrums, spectra. But yeah, so the, the, the response was very knee jerk, defensive, angry. Um, 90% a response from white people. And, um, I mean, Panache's piece, there was, I think, People, when they hear land restitution, immediately throw up their hands in horror and fear. Um, but more than that, they they seem to get the feeling that she was saying in her interrogation of Ubuntu that white people were not, that they were Abantu, not a person. And I think there was a, a failure there to really engage with the, the gist of what she was saying, um, particularly in quoting Tutu and others who have, have invoked Ubuntu, the concept of Ubuntu as a nation-building reconciliatory instrument she talks about um ubuntu is a is a becoming it's a it's an evolving into personhood it's not a mm. static thing mm. so in terms of our engaging with these issues and talking to each other about it we are becoming we are becoming ubuntu we are becoming people so i don't think she was putting things in black and white no irony intended but it's just talking about the lack of engaging which then i tried to just a comment on in, 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 I talked about Robin D'Angelo, who wrote that really excellent book called White Fragility, why it's so hard for, for white people to talk about race and how they tend to either flee or fight or, you know, either uh, react defensively or aggressively or just walk out and refuse to, to engage with that. I mean, so there are a lot of interesting points that D'Angelo makes, but it was, it, my point was really just to say, why can't we talk about this and why? run away when you hear the word race in, in absolute fear and trembling. Um, and that in turn invoked an aggressive reaction. So as I say, I don't think either of us was being particularly provocative, but it's it's just interesting the way that people have responded. Yeah. As a journalist and as an editor, were you surprised by the responses or are they habitual patterns from white South Africans that consume your media? Um. I think, I mean, I can't speak for all our readers. I think there is certainly a pattern, and I think it's not just uh, confined to our media. Obviously, that is those are the comments that we hear. But in daily life, anecdotally, you know, this comes up a lot where 
all these these kind of classic hackneyed statements. It's you know apartheid's over. Why can't we all just get along? Um, people saying we're not welcome here anymore. It's like all of this this kind of <laughs> trotted out stuff, which is I mean it is how people feel, so it's valid. At the same time, it's um, it's quite disingenuous to go. You know why why doesn't everyone love me now? And why why are poor black people still angry with me as a rich white person? And um, what I think both I and Panache tried to mention was that there is, as you said just now, there is nothing wrong or bad about being born into privilege. It's just what happens to you. It's it's acknowledging that and um, just at least being a little sensitive to to the um, non-privileged around you in a sense. Yeah, um, yeah and, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one... <sighs> I don't know. I'm in a good mood this morning. When I'm not, I think people should work on their own. And we'll come back to what kind of work people should do that is not mediated by members of an oppressed group. Because it's really interesting to me that people can benefit, sometimes be aware of their benefit from a history of oppression, even if they were not directly responsible for the oppression. And yet, when it comes to interrogating their undue benefits, they suddenly want someone else to come along like an American speaker and help them out at the apartheid museum to understand what is blatantly plain and obvious, quite frankly. So I think it's disingenuous. So when I'm not in a good mood, I tell people, go Google or go speak to other white people who are further ahead than you to have the conversation with. But I think the analogs are useful. And if you in a generous mood like me, maybe we can just go to that conversation of why it is important to come to terms with your privilege. The obvious analog is male privilege for myself. I mean, you can talk about white privilege. Um, as a male, if, you know, I didn't choose to have this amount of testosterone relative to the average person that is um, a woman or biologically female at birth. But the social history of the world is such, through no choosing of my own, but I benefit from it, that, for example, the way I'm speaking now with plosives, with a deep, deep voice, that is taken to denote authority, confidence, leadership ability. It means I've got a head start over Sue before we even start opening our mouths in a public speaking or debating competition, um, which is an example I used in Run, Races, Run, in a chapter on the myth of objectivity. Um, there's no, I might, I may or may not be a more persuasive speaker than a Sue de Groot, but what is undeniable is that the normative expectation of audiences even the ones who might think they know better, is to index convincing speech next to typical male traits. And that is just because of how patriarchy works. And there are examples of that within the economy, within the workplace, in other ways, in interpersonal relationships, at home, domestically. And the question is, sure, I didn't begin the history of patriarchy, but I was born into it. And if I recognize that it is unjust and that I am an unjust beneficiary of that history of patriarchy, what the hell will I do to make amends because my male body is implicated in it? So that's how I think about, about being a privileged male. And a lot of men don't want to go there assuming, oh, well, it's not my fault that Sue hasn't been promoted yet. She's not very good at getting us lots of clients, etc., etc. And it's so easy to try and come up with cop-out explanations of that individual woman's journey within your firm and not located within all sorts of other silent dynamics that are actually not related to the intrinsics of Sue, but that, but that are directly flowing 
from the way in which patriarchy structures everything, including how HR may evaluate her performance. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm sorry if there's a little background noise here. No, but, it's part uh, of the course. Construction. Uh, modern, modern broadcasting. At some point, my dog is going to bark this side. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. And um, But just to, to take it to the race, privilege of race, there's, um, there's another kind of privilege um, we were talking about, whether one calls oneself liberal or progressive. And not to excuse people who refuse to engage, but I think there is to to evolve and to have these discussions. We need to understand where people are coming from, not necessarily forgive them, but to to try and understand. And there's certainly, um, I w- I would not want to be virtue signaling because I think that I have the privilege. So I had the privilege of going to university and at like the age of seventeen, coming from a sheltered apartheid suburban all white existence, suddenly. At 17, meeting, you know, black people all from all over, and going to my first year working in El Dorado Park, and and so on. So just a a sense of um, contact that that I I consider a privilege. Then all the you know the work that I've done, I've always worked with. It's it's uh, as I say, not virtue signaling, but because of the circumstances, it became easier perhaps for me than than a lot of other white people to transcend that that kind of them and us race kind of um uncomfortableness or sense of superiority or sense of difference um because of my circumstances. And I think it is important to understand that a lot of white people, particularly older ones, are stuck in a in a world where the probably the only interactions they have with black people are either their domestic workers or, you know, shop assistants or so on. That they perhaps don't haven't ever had that um what would you call it equal kind of basis for interacting with black people that's not to excuse their uh, inability to think about that but perhaps the the situation has not been um well, quite interesting and I want to come back to that but yeah. if you had to think about garden variety everyday experiences for yourself as soon hmm. in the first person what are ways in which that might be illuminating to a white person that is not conscious what are ways in which you experience what really shouldn't be called privileges, but that's the language we've come to use, certain privileges that you can take for granted in everyday ways in which you interact with the world that black or brown people can't? Yeah, and I, I think that's certainly in a, a in specific situations, but also just in a broad sense, and I think this is not a popular um, sort of theory or viewpoint, a lot of black people would be would be angry with this, but I think there certainly is a sense of never having to feel ill at ease because you're white as a person might have had to because they're black, feeling like you might not be served first or feeling sort of slightly, um, um, what's, I don't, humble is the wrong word, but just feeling, you know, awkward about something, going into a bank, feeling you know that you don't entirely have the right to be there in a in a certain sort of mm. nebulous way. Mm. Um, I think white people take a lot of that stuff for granted and don't realize the the kind of inherited almost sense of second classness that I think infects a lot of black people even subconsciously. Um, if that makes sense, I think that's right, and I mean I think we can pile on the examples. I mean I think that's absolutely right. Um, mm. You are less likely 
to worry about being policed in casual ways if you are walking around the store just looking at garments. Yes. Um, whereas for a black person, uh, there is a 50-50 chance. I mean, I went shopping for a Christmas gift for my partner and I always get to your point, Sue, around that discomfort. Um, when a salesperson sort of hovers around you, it's really difficult for me to still know whether they're just, just doing their job, which is perfectly acceptable, and it's a KPI of theirs, or whether it's partly they're not quite sure whether I'm a bona fide customer. And I sometimes feel sorry for them because I may or may not look annoyed in turn, but the annoyance is rooted in that knowledge that is in my blood as a black person that someone may not give you a benefit of the doubt about whether you are a bona fide body in their shop or a would-be thief. Mm. That is something exactly. white people don't have to think about. I think it is that thing. It's never having to think about, do I have a, a right to be here? Will people be happy with me being here? That kind of thing. Mm. Um, also, I mean, you see it in, in the worst possible incarnation where white people will just walk to the front of the queue or... You know, um, assume that <laughs> assume that the black person waiting there is actually a shop assistant instead of a customer. That kind of thing. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so, so there are those things to be aware of. Yeah. Um, Let's go to the more controversial point that you made. I think, and I mean, it's interesting you say virtue signaling. I don't think it's virtue signaling at all. Firstly, if it is a fact about your biography, I think then you are entitled to state it and claim it that experiences that you've had, whether it be journalistic or social interaction, contact with people who are different, traveling, if you have that privilege from a class point of view, can expand your worldview. And so that's par for the course. But where I probably disagree with you is on how much empathy one should have for someone that hasn't done the work. And I would do the same with men. I accept that there are different levels of literacy when it comes to how we deal with unconscious biases, explicit oppression, and everything else in between. But I also think that although reading a D'Angelo book, reading Run, Races, Run, might be a primer to understand these things, I think if you have a brain, you don't need a university education. You just need to be conscious and to think about the, the, the world in which you live. Um, and so I... No, you weren't saying it quite this boldly, but it might be a useful caricature to ask the question, does a white person in Santon really need to travel to El Dorado Park to understand that they have, they have privilege when they get served before a black person? Absolutely. And um, in, in some ways to contradict what I was saying about feeling lucky to have had interactions, which I think... Uh, increased my ability to have in to understand interracial relations more at the same time um there's the corollary to that so i'll tell you an anecdote a, a friend well the son of an acquaintance of mine grew up born free went to a mixed school had best friends in soweto used to go to the townships every weekend the white kid used to go and visit his his black friends in the townships then got to a private high school where his white friends um from kind of, I suppose you could say, Santonite ilk, were not happy with him playing soccer and used to make, make comments about him 
the music he listened to or comments about he had mm. fried chicken on his fingers or stuff like that to the extent that he didn't look I don't think I don't know him well enough I don't think he turned into a total um terrible person but certainly cut ties withdrew from those black friends he'd had as a as a younger child and became part of this kind of rather nasty white group um which and that's these are young people this is not these are not kids who grew up during apartheid so that mm. that inherited kind of as i say you can still have that sense and still choose to be racist which mm. is is kind of worse <laughs> yeah no i get you i think the practical question all of this raises in turn is and you know that this is the question you'll you'll get both sarcastically and sometimes genuinely what must i do sue i've read your column okay what must i do what do you want me to do and i hate that question because I, firstly i think it's lazy i think a lot of people will know what to do if they want to know what to do uh, to be meta again by just sitting and examining quite literally your experience compared to other people i mean it's like men don't rape do you really need me to put you in a circle to understand how not to violate a woman's body you can probably figure out in the shower don't rape it's really mm. simple we don't need a half day workshop at the office to know that pinching sue's butt is a sexual violation and and so there's a part of me that gets annoyed by that question because it performs a putative interest in wanting to grow but often it's not clear whether there's a genuine motive to do so but be that as it may again let's be nice how do we travel the distance between where most people might be at right now certainly the ones who wrote the letters mm. and the demands of ubuntu how do you get into the becoming more human space and what does that actually entail i mean i think that might be a question that that's worth worth examining absolutely i mean as you say there's no manual you yeah. know people wish there would be well okay go out and say this to the next black person you see and you will be okay now <laughs> you know it's not but i mean get, taking it very much from that ubuntu development of personhood um angle certainly i think it's it's a no brainer to go well treat people like people look at people like people so so for those white people who don't have many interactions with black people except possibly for their domestic workers it's how do you know your domestic worker's surname do you know her indigenous name do you know where she comes from her family history this kind of thing because i think there is a i mean it's not to say um to be all you know warm and fuzzy and we must all be best friends now but just an, an interest in people would be a good starting point if you ask me i do think that's an important starting point because that's mm. part of what it means to recognize someone mm. and that's a conversation on my other podcast Eusebius on Times Live that I had yesterday with Panache that is out this morning so anyone who's listening to this podcast i think it dovetails nicely with my conversation with Panache on Eusebius on Times Live which you can find on any podcast platform and one of the things we explored there is what exactly does ubuntu mean it's not just warm and fuzzy feelings it requires active work and part of that work involves me seeing sue and recognizing sue but what does recognition mean there ethically and what actions go with recognizing sue mm -hmm. it means listening when she speaks it means respecting her when she speaks taking a genuine interest in her world view her projects what she values 
if I am her manager, her friend, her boss. So it's not even unique to interracial relations. The same would go for the demands of friendship, for good workplace relations, collegiality. And in that sense, yeah, if you see your domestic worker or your gardener as just bodies that are part of the landscape in a functional way and you transactionally give them money. It's not to say you've got to now be BFFs and invite them over mm. to your Saturday soiree with your girlfriends um, because there's a difference between friendship and still having a economic relationship with someone. But, you know, even when you are in a workplace relationship with other folks around you, there's recognition and there's ghosting someone in a way that undermines their humanity. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's why people are going to say I'm attacking them again, but you can hear it in the tone of some white people just when they say hello to two people, one being a white person, one being a black person. There's there's a certain um, withdrawing and coldness in the, in the tone itself. I don't know. That's a very evanescent thing, but but it's it's there. Um, just a, another silly example, perhaps, but talking about um, people who have workers who they regard almost just as bodies or, or chattel. So a few years ago, some years ago, we did a, one of our photographers did a photo essay of suburban dog walkers. So, you know, people who worked for people in white suburbs who would all gather in the parks and walk their dogs. So it was, it was just beautiful pictures of these people with all their dogs and then, you know, where they came from. And some had comments. There was, there was a sort of underlying comment about this is black people walking white people's dogs, which is something you see a lot in the suburbs. Um, and we had calls from two people going, how dare we speak to her domestic worker without her permission or take pictures wow. of her and her dogs? I mean, which is the sense of, uh, I can't even, the, the lack of sensitivity about, I'm sorry, this person is not your possession. Wow. That's literally part. And that's the kind of thing that fires up, particularly young black people that are keeping... Yes us on our toes about how quickly we are moving towards a more just society or not. Mm -hmm. That is literally part of the long global history of rendering black bodies as things and as property. Yeah. I think, you know, also what one of the things is white people's attitude to particularly young but angry black people generally. So, and there is that that fear and defensive aggress aggression that comes out. And uh, there's a lot of Panache mentions how white people had this joyful surprise when there was a lack of bitterness and retribution after Nelson Mandela became president. And I think there's there's this sort of backlash thing among some young black people who say Mandela was a sellout. I don't think that's true. I think that white people sold Mandela out because they they thought they were given a free pass and it's fine, everything can just go on as it is. We do not need to work to, I don't think that's what he meant at all. I think he expected to lead by example and that people would um, have their own private truth and reconciliation. I think that's beautifully put. I dare you to annoy them and write that. That's a good headline <laughs> and a good sentence to write into and to unravel because I think it is so true. The same is true of the later Tutu, the tutu whose radicalism we now try and recover. It's not so much that he let us down by abandoning his early radicalism. It's rather that we let him down by taking a partial view of his messaging. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Do you think, second last issue to ventilate, hmm. 
this is the kind of work if you are a beneficiary of a group like us men are beneficiaries of patriarchy or white people are beneficiaries of a global history of white supremacy and anti-black racism and racialized capitalism. How important is it or not, do you think, for these conversations to take place between the children of hegemony without being mediated by a Eusebius, a Panache, or some other black author to come and explain to you why they are angry, why anger is justified, how intergenerational wealth works, etc., etc., and rather to have Sue be the facilitator, not Eusebius? I think it's important, and particularly among young people, um, and certainly there is, I think, a lot of that going on, which is one of the advantages, one of the good things about social media, and is that there are channels where people are talking and challenging each other. I think there's there's a kind of caution or a caveat there as well. So I was just thinking uh, last year I spoke to Professor Pumla Dinerikola, whose latest book is called Female Fear Factory. We were talking particularly about um, patriarchy and and um, sort of the oppression of women in this case, but I think it applies to race as well, where she said she sometimes is concerned with with students in her classes where there is this anger, which is good. There is this, this desire to change and to improve things and to be more Ubuntu, which is good. But there's also a lot of um, a sort of fury and a, and a kind of non um, a, a rigidity to thinking where young people particularly will call out other young people, whether it's a, an anti-woman issue or, an, or a racist issue, and will not allow them the, 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 the platform to actually discuss that. They will just cut them dead and isolate them. And that can be, I agree with Pamela, quite dangerous in the sense that people then become isolated, become angry, and possibly even more entrenched in their faulty thinking rather than drawing them in and saying, why did you do this to this woman? Why did you say that to that black person? Let's talk about it. So I think the the, the fervent, the fervency and the, the kind of um, ethics of youth are good, but I think they can be sometimes manifest in a way that is could be seen as destructive when, when other kids are isolated. I think what makes it difficult, and maybe we can end on discussing this flowing from your last comment about your conversation <laughs> with Pumla, I think what makes it difficult is that there are multiple responses to oppression that are many of which are acceptable and defensible but look very different and can play out differently. Mm. I, for example, am a proponent of both the instrumental value and the moral acceptability of not just anger, but even rage. I think that when something is broken morally in the world, it is appropriate to feel rage. Mm. Rage can be a psychological push to change the world, and even if you don't act, which you should, at the very least it signals your awareness of the wrong, and it is an expression of disgust with that which is wrong. I don't know how you can respond to misogyny, misogynoir, patriarchy, class-based oppression with 
utter cool, calm, collective attitudes. The tone of this interaction is quite convivial. But when I walk out the house and I were to hear someone perform in a speech act the K-word, I would be enraged. I'm not about to have a lecker conversation with them or invite yeah. them to Tash's for a cup of tea to deconstruct the language. So I think that would be a wrong response. I've got nothing against interlocutors that wish to maximize the chances of helping someone to see their unconscious biases, to see their privileges by not making them feel defensive. I think if you want to use that methodology, that's brilliant. And I could give you, not you literally, anyone listening to the podcast, lots of names of facilitators who do good work who've got that kind of approach. But I also am a defendant of young people's entitlement to be able to write furiously against patriarchy, furiously against racism, furiously against class privilege, furiously against transphobia, even within the LGBTI community. And I think those of us who are older also, and this is not to disagree with Pumla, but as, a, as an and statement, we sometimes also don't take enough time to reflect on the moral value and the instrumental usefulness of anger and even rage. I completely agree. And I think um, going back to what we were saying earlier about what can I do, if there is one instruction in that manual, it's don't stand by when something mm. is wrong. Rage is, I think it's very important not to be afraid of rage too. And I think white people are, are just retreat into their terrified little skins when someone, when it's, it's important to understand and to allow why black people are angry, why poor people are angry, why women are angry, why people are angry about GBV, homophobia, transphobia, racism, and to also to be able to to call those things out and to to accept that. I think we, we need to be less, less afraid of anger, absolutely. But I think explaining why we're angry is also part of that process. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been a fantastic conversation, very productive, and I'm sure very useful to listeners of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, Sue. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Eusebius. Have a good day. Cheers. Bye-bye.